We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 72 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, May 27th, 2021. Where were you when Russell Westbrook had popcorn thrown on him in game two? Is that what game two is going to be remembered for? Does that game go down now as the popcorn game? Because the game sure as heck does not go down as a Wizards win. An awful performance by the Wizards on Wednesday night. 120-95, the final at the Philadelphia 76ers. Wiz now trail the Sixers 2-0 in the first round of the NBA playoffs. I know, I know, the Wizards are an eight seed. The Sixers are a one seed. I know, I know, this probably was to be expected. But if you're a fan of the Wizards as I am, you get your hopes up, you get excited, and then you get what we got on Wednesday night. A brutal performance by the Wiz. Joel Embiid was doing some kind of magic mic celebration. The Sixers owned the Wizards. And then our guy, Russell Westbrook, who had just hurt his ankle, gets popcorn thrown on him. Real classy Philadelphia. I do think Westbrook will live, uh, but the Wizards season likely will not. Uh, not after another few games. We'll see. Hey, maybe Popcorn Gate brings the Wizards together in a way we never dreamed. Hello and welcome. Is Jay-Z about to become an owner of the Washington football team? Who? What? Where did that come from? Yeah, Jay-Z buying in on the WFT. That became a thing, a big thing on Wednesday. It's actually not as out of nowhere as you may think. I'll talk about the situation in depth 
coming up shortly as I have a lot of Washington football team talk for you on this installment of the podcast. The details are in on the Charles Leno Jr. and Bobby McCain contracts, and they continue what I believe has been a very shrewd offseason for Washington from a contractual standpoint. Washington has added and re-signed a bunch of players, has gotten better, and yet still has a lot of salary cap room. That's not easy to do, and yet Washington has done it. I'll give you a thorough breakdown. Special guest on the show, Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington. We'll talk Washington football team off what Pete saw at the team's open OTA practice on Tuesday. And we'll do a lot on Ryan Fitzpatrick, including why Ron Rivera already loves Ryan Fitzpatrick. I will talk capitals on the show because that's what we do on this podcast. Talk about the area team's that you care about the most. The Caps are not ignored on this podcast. Not at all, nor should they be. Lots of stuff has been said over the last few days. Players speaking on Tuesday. Brian McClellan and Peter Laviolette speaking on Wednesday. I'll get into the most significant things that were said as we continue to explore what should be next for the Caps of the five-game first-round loss to the Boston Bruins and the Stanley Cup playoffs. Also, if you are an Orioles fan, you don't want to miss my Orioles segment late in the show. Mike Elias had a message for those who can't take all of the losing right now. I have a message too. It's basically what the Don, Don Corleone said and did in The Godfather many years ago. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Exactly. There you go. Act like a man and get your act together. Suck it up because this is the way it's got to be at least right now. Well, if you're a Nationals fan, how about what happened on Wednesday night? Boy, did you have to suck it up and then some. What was that horrendous communication regarding the status of Game 2 against the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park? Not the first time that something like this has happened at Nationals Park. Now, to what extent this is a Nationals thing versus an MLB thing is hard to say. All I know is this. Rain delay began at 8.31 p.m., Official announcement that the game had been suspended did not come until 11.35 p.m. And as the cleaning crew at Nationals Park began to clean between seats, the scoreboard still said, we continue to see isolated scattered lightning behind the departing line of storms. We remain in a delay until storms pass. Uh, yeah, the game had already been suspended at that point. I can't imagine what it was like for those of you who are at Nationals Park waiting to see this thing through. A three-hour-plus delay, and then it was, okay, bye, see you tomorrow. Uh, we will have a doubleheader on Thursday for the Nationals and the Reds. Uh, doubleheader beginning at 2.05 p.m., so that will be the completion of the suspended game. A game in which the Nationals are winning. It is 3-0 in the fourth inning. Joe Ross actually looking good, although Joe Ross won't be pitching uh, to complete this game on Thursday. But four scoreless innings also helped his cause, as the announcers like to say, with a two-out RBI single on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the third inning. And then we get a seven-inning game at 7.05 on Thursday night. So this is kind of interesting because technically it's considered a double header, even though game one has already started, but it'll be a seven inning game on Thursday evening, 7.05. Steven Strasburg is pitching for the Nats in that spot. But this garbage that's gone down way too often of it's raining and it doesn't look like the game is going to be played or continued, but you can't know for sure until you know. And people are just left hanging. I, I that, That's terrible. Treat your customers better. And again, I don't know how much of this is the Nats versus how much of this is MLB. But, you know, at some level, it doesn't matter. 
people are being done dirty. Especially, you know, you think about what's going on right now. You got fans coming back out to the ballpark. You know, if you're the Nationals, you're trying to welcome back people with open arms. Say, hey, come out, spend your money on our games as our country is opening up. And then these people get done the way they got done Thursday night at Nationals Park. That that was ridiculous. Uh, there's really no excuse for something like that. If you were there, hit me up. Let me know. At Al Galdi on Twitter, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com via email. Anyway, like I said, tons to talk about on the show. Plenty on the Washington football team. But yes, we shall begin with our basketball team, which was not so good on Wednesday evening in Philly. You know, it's not been a good last few days when it comes to Washington versus Philadelphia. Ryan Kerrigan siding with the Eagles and saying, fly Eagles fly on social media in a video that made me sick to my stomach. And now we have back-to-back losses for the Wiz at the Sixers to begin that first round NBA playoff series. Well, that was fun while it lasted, wasn't it? The rise of the Wizards, the 17-6 and conclusion to the regular season, the winning of the game over the Indiana Pacers in the play-in tournament to make the NBA playoffs, a competitive game one loss at the Philadelphia 76ers on Sunday afternoon, a cold bucket of water poured on all of us as Wizards fans on Wednesday night, a 120-95 loss at the 76ers in game two of the best of seven first round series in the NBA playoffs. And thus concludeth any realistic hope of the Wizards winning this first round series against Philly, to whatever extent that hope ever existed. Understand now the history that the Wizards are facing. The NBA expanded the first round of the playoffs from best of five series to best of seven series, beginning with the 2003 NBA playoffs. Number one seeds in best of seven first round series with 2-0 leads are 25-0 and 0 in those series. So the Wizards are going to try to make that, I guess, 25-1 and 1 with what happens in this series. Uh, good luck with that. This was ugly on Wednesday night. This was, in a lot of ways, off-putting on Wednesday night. The Wizards got outclassed. The Wizards got demolished. The Wizards got smashed. As Stephen A. Smith has said many times on this podcast, the damn Washington Wizards. Exactly. That's precisely what was in effect on Wednesday night. A rare 9-100 point game for the Wizards. I mean, just look at the game in that way, and that tells you all you need to know. The Wizards, if they've done one thing right and scored at least 100 points, this game on Wednesday night, the first time in 28 games that the Wizards did not score at least 100 points. The last time that the Wizards had not scored at least 100 points in a game, a 109-87 loss to the Dallas Mavericks at Capital One Arena back on April 3rd. That was a game that dropped the Wizards to 17-31 and on the season. Then came a 103-101 loss to the Toronto Raptors in Florida to fall to 17-32. and And then came the surge, the Wizards going 17-6 and the rest of the regular season to finish up at 34 and 38. But that rise seemed like a distant memory on Wednesday night because game two of Wizards Sixers was a no doubt route. 
the Wizards weren't competitive in this game. And that's the shame of the game. The Wizards were competitive in that game one loss at Philly on Sunday afternoon, 125-118 the final. We've talked a lot about that game this week on the podcast, talked about the game at length with the legendary former television voice of the Wizards, Steve Buckhans, on Wednesday's installment of the podcast episode 71. But the Wizards' largest lead in game two was a one-point lead in the first quarter. The Wizards never led in any of the final three quarters in the game. The Wizards in the second half never trailed by fewer than 12 points. The Wizards in the fourth quarter trailed by as many as 27 points. You get the idea. This was a pasting, a polaxing, a blowout loss for the Wizards at the Sixers. The damn Washington Wizards. Thank you, Stephen A. So in terms of why what went down went down, the Wizards' three-point shooting was atrocious. The Wizards' free throw shooting wasn't much better. The Wizards for the game went two for 22 on threes. Let me repeat that. Two for 22 on threes. The Sixers, conversely, went nine of 21 on threes. Bradley Beal for the Wiz, a mere one of six on threes in game two. I've talked about this many times. You're likely aware of this by now, but for all of the good that Bradley Beal is as an offensive player, especially as a scorer, he is not a good three-point shooter. He has regressed as a three-point shooter in his career. Beal this past regular season, a career-worst 34.9% on threes, and on Wednesday night, one of six on threes. Davis Bertans, his horrible first season of that five-year, $80 million contract continued. O of four on threes, zero points, and he fouled out on Wednesday night. Played for 23 minutes, 44 seconds off the bench. Davis Bertans, he is supposed to be a three-point specialist. His nickname is the Latvian Laser. He was so good on threes last season for the Wizards. That's why people like me advocated for the Wizards to do whatever was necessary to resign him this past offseason. And at least right now, that contract looks like a complete and total whiff. That contract right now is in Jan Mahinmi territory. We'll see if Bertans can work his way out of that. But on Wednesday night, 0 of 4 on threes, 0 points, 6 fouls in 23 minutes, 44 seconds off the bench. Russell Westbrook went 0-3 on threes. Howell Neto, 0-2 on threes. It's Smith, 0-2 on threes. The guy who made the Wizards' other three, I mentioned Beal going 1-6. Rui Hachimura, of all people, went 1-1 on threes. He actually shot the three well in this series. He had a couple of nice threes in the fourth quarter of the game one loss on Sunday afternoon. But yes, Wizards go 2-22 for 22 on threes in game two. And here's the thing with the Wiz when it comes to the three, and this is obviously not something that's going to be rectified in this series, but the Wizards have got to get to a point where they shoot more threes and clearly are better on threes. Understand the Wizards in the regular season were next to last, number 29 in the NBA in lowest percentage of field goal attempts is threes at 31.9. The Wizards, uh, we've discussed how bizarre they are, how, how Jekyll and Hyde they are. This is one of the many ways in which that's true. The Wizards, on the one hand, are extremely modern in terms of the pace at which the Wizards play. No team played faster in the NBA during the regular season than the Wizards did. But the Wizards are so behind the times, the Wizards are so antiquated when it comes to how the Wizards shoot the basketball. Again, next to last in the NBA in the regular season in lowest percentage of field goal attempts as threes 
at 31.9. This is something that's got to be addressed come the offseason. It's cute to make a bunch of twos, okay? It's a hard way to make a living in today's NBA. Then there are the free throws. The Wizards on Wednesday night, 19 of 30 on free throws. The Sixers, 13 of 19 on free throws. So you didn't necessarily get demolished in the free throw battle from a standpoint of how many free throws you made versus how many the Sixers made. But 19 of 30, you blew 11 free throw attempts in this game. Russell Westbrook, just 6 of 10 on free throws. Daniel Gafford, just 5 of 9 on free throws. Bradley Beal, just 4 of 6 on free throws. Then there was the Wizards defense. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. The Wizards allowed the 76ers to go 9 of 21 on threes. That's not good. That's a 42.9% shooting percentage on threes. But the bigger item was this. The Wizards got torched by the Sixers inside. The Wizards allowed the Sixers to go 40 of 67 on twos. Remember in game one, one of the things that I found very encouraging was how the Wizards controlled the game inside. That was not the case in game two. More on that in a moment. But while the Wizards did do a better job in game two of defending without fouling as compared to in game one, the Wizards did not do a good job of defending, period, in game two. The 76ers' five starters, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, Danny Green, Ben Simmons, and Seth Curry, a combined six of 13 on threes and 28 of 37 on twos. And specific to Embiid, how about the night that he had on Wednesday night? He only played for 26 minutes, 17 seconds as a starter. And yet, he finished with 22 points, seven rebounds, three assists versus one turnover, and a game-high tying plus-minus rating of plus 19. He went three of four on threes. And he had maybe the highlight of the night. It certainly made the rounds on social media after the game. A transition and one bucket, after which he while laying on his back, started thrusting his hips and moving his arms. It was almost like a pseudo crotch chop. For those of you who are pro wrestling fans, a crotch chop in the vein of the NWO and DX back in the 90s. Now, he did not actually take the hands and put them near the crotch, but he was moving his arms up and down as if he was kind of suggesting he wanted to do that. And he for sure was thrusting his hips. You knew what he was trying to communicate with what he was doing there, but he got away with it. And you get away with it when you produce the way that MB does. The Wizards had no answer for Joel Embiid. The Philadelphia 76ers Twitter account actually tweeted out the video of Joel Embiid doing this and had as the sort of caption for it, thrust the process which I actually thought was pretty funny, although totally disrespectful to our basketball team. Now, I mentioned the Sixers going 40-67 on twos. This was part of the Wizards getting dominated inside in Game 2. The Wizards on Wednesday night got outscored in the paint 68-50. And this really stood out because the Wizards in Game 1 outscored the Sixers in the paint 76-58. The Wizards have made a living in the paint this season. Again, the Wizards don't take many threes, but they've actually been quite good on twos. Russell Westbrook has been a big part of that. Bradley Beal has been a big part of that. The extreme efficiency of guys like Daniel Gafford and Robin Lopez has been a big part of that. Well, on Wednesday night, it was the Sixers who owned the paint. Again, 68-50 paint point advantage for Philly over the Wizards. Take a look at a guy like Ben Simmons, okay? So Ben Simmons, it's a weird offensive profile for Ben Simmons, right? He's awful on free throws. 
He's not a good three-point shooter. Ben Simmons took 15 shots on Wednesday night in terms of field goal attempts. All 15 of his field goal attempts were twos. He went 11 of 15 on those field goal attempts. The 11 makes included five dunks and five layups. That's how you outscore the Wizards in the paint 68-50 with a guy in Ben Simmons making 11 shots, all twos, five dunks, five layups among the 11 makes. He finished Simmons did with 22 points, nine rebounds, eight assists versus two turnovers and two steals in just 28 minutes, 34 seconds. It really was an interesting game statistically for the Sixers because their starters did not play much, but they still put up big numbers. I mentioned Embiid's just took you through Simmons. How about this? The Wizards finished the game with two block shots. The 76ers finished the game with 14 block shots. Yes, Philly had 14 blocks to the Wizards too. Matisse Thibel finished with five blocks in just 19 minutes, 54 seconds off the bench. Tyrese Maxey had three blocks in just 13 minutes, 41 seconds off the bench. 14 76ers block shots to the Wizards too in game two. Something else that bothered me about game two The second half was way too slow. And I understand the second half, the game was basically over. Okay, again, Wizards never trilled by fewer than 12 points in the second half. But if the Wizards are going to have any shot at winning a game in this series, let alone making the series competitive, let alone winning the series, okay, although to me, that's now out the window. You got to play fast. You got to play with pace. And the game was not played with pace in the second half. The pace in the second half, and pace is a stat, possessions per 48 minutes per NBA.com was just 91. The first half pace was 105. Now you might say, okay, Galdi, what do those numbers mean in terms of like good, bad, like indifferent, what? Well, the Wizards in the regular season were number one in the NBA in pace. Again, that's possessions per 48 minutes per NBA.com. That number for the Wizards was 104.67. Again, the first half pace in game two on Wednesday night was 105. That's right in line with what the Wizards won. But the second half pace in game two was 91, a slow plotting pace, the likes of which kills the Wizards. When the Wizards and or their opponents are walking the basketball up, when the Wizards are in a half-court offense, when the Wizards get stuck in iso ball, things don't go so well. And that certainly was the case on Wednesday night. The Wizards cannot get sucked into the pace that you know the 76ers are going to try to dictate. Sixers, by the way, in the regular season, 12th in the NBA in pace. So it's not like Philly was completely incapable of playing up tempo, but the Wizards make a living doing that. And a big key for the Sixers in this series, obviously, is to slow these games down. And when that has happened, the Wizards have gotten in trouble. All right, now to Russell Westbrook. He did not have a very good game one. He had an awful game two in a variety of ways. I mean, think about Westbrook's game two. Bad for a second time in as many games in the series, gets hurt, and gets popcorn dumped on him, all right? That's hitting for the trifecta in terms of a bad night in an NBA playoff game. In terms of how he played, Westbrook 0-3 on threes, just 2-7 on twos, just 6-10 on free throws. So vintage, inefficient shooting from Russell Westbrook. He finished with 10 points, 11 assists versus 4 turnovers, and 6 rebounds in 29 minutes, 7 seconds as a starter. Also, he played for just a minute, 32 seconds in the fourth quarter as he left the game due to an ankle injury. So now that's a big concern moving forward. The health 
of Russell Westbrook. Game three isn't until Saturday night at Capital One Arena. But obviously, if Russell Westbrook is ailing, if Russell Westbrook is limping, then you really can forget about the Wizards winning a game in this series, let alone making it competitive, let alone winning this series. And then there was the popcorn. And I laughed because this became such a to-do after the game. This is kind of typical for the NBA, where the NBA, it's never just about the games. It's always about this extracurricular stuff, like who's getting along with who, and who said what about who, and who had popcorn dumped on them. Like, that's kind of how the NBA makes its living now, because it for darn sure isn't about watching the basketball, because the NBA's television ratings have gone down the tubes in recent years. I like the NBA, but the truth is the truth. People are not watching these NBA games like they used to. I hope it turns around because I am a fan of the current NBA product, but apparently I'm in, I am in an increasingly small and increasingly shrinking minority. But anyway, Westbrook suffers the ankle injury. As he's walking into the tunnel, he gets popcorn dumped on him by a fan at Wells Fargo Center and has to be restrained. Now, of course, everyone knows the city of Philadelphia The city of brotherly love, aka the city of brotherly hate, has a lengthy history of this kind of thing going on, okay? It's happened a million times over the years. Fans acting out, fans throwing things, fans dumping things on people. It's gone on forever, right? So nobody's really surprised by this. That, of course, doesn't make it right. In fact, Wells Fargo Center, and good for it, actually put out a statement condemning what happened to Russell Westbrook. Valerie Camillo, president of business operations for the Wells Fargo Center, as the statement reads, issued the following statement as the statement says, quote, after a guest at tonight's 76ers playoff game poured popcorn on a Wizards player who was leaving the court after sustaining an injury. This was classless, unacceptable behavior, and we're not going to tolerate it at Wells Fargo Center. We're proud to have the most passionate fans in the country and the best home court and home ice advantages around but this type of behavior has no place in our arena, end quote. Uh, Westbrook, after the game, of course, got asked about this a ton and said what you would expect. Quote, honestly, this S is out of hand. If a guy threw popcorn on my head on the streets, we know what would happen. And quote, Westbrook on unruly fans, quote, they feel like they're untouchable. They can say what they want. And quote, Westbrook, quote, throwing food on top of me. It's just bull bleep, end quote. Bradley Beal after the game on Westbrook having popcorn thrown on him, quote, it's disgusting, end quote. None other than LeBron James opined on popcorn having been thrown on Russell Westbrook. Bron Bron on Twitter, quote, by the way, we as players want to see who threw that popcorn on Russ while he was leaving the game tonight with an injury. There are cameras all over arenas, so there's no excuse because if the shoe, and he doesn't write shoe, he uses a shoe emoji, If the shoe was on the other foot and he doesn't write foot, he uses the foot emoji and then he leaves it at that and then he has a camera emoji. Bron Bron loves his emojis. Uh, He writes hashtag protect our players. So this is a thing. This is going to continue to be a thing. I mean, at the end of the day, it is popcorn. It's not like a brick was dropped on Russell Westbrook's head. Uh, if you want to use this as some kind of galvanizing thing from a Wizards perspective, go ahead and do it. Knock yourself out. But the Wizards got totally outshined and totally outclassed in game two at the 76ers. As for Bradley Beal in game two, a mixed game for him. One of six on threes, not good. Four of six on free throws, not good. In a fourth quarter that the Wizards lost 26-15, Beal scored one point on 0-5 shooting. Not good. 
Beal finished the game with a game worst plus minus rating of minus 22. Not good. Now, I will give Beal credit. He scored 32 points over the first three quarters, finished with 33 points. He went 13 to 22 on twos for the game. And he also finished the game with four rebounds and three assists versus one turnover. And he did all this in 34 minutes, 36 seconds as a starter. So I don't want to make it out to be like Bradley Beal did nothing in the game. And Beal is facing a very physical team in the 76ers. Beal is facing a very good defensive team in the 76ers. Philadelphia finished the regular season number two in the NBA in defensive rating, which is simply points allowed for 100 possessions per NBA.com. Beal was far from the Wizards' biggest problem on Wednesday night, but it's not like he had some banner performance. Again, the Sixers thrashed the Wizards. Nobody really had anything close to what you would call a great game for the Wizards, okay? Like all these usual contributors we become accustomed to, Rui Hachimura, Daniel Gafford, Robin Lopez, maybe you get something from Adis Smith. Uh, None of those guys were doing much on Wednesday night. Again, the game was non-competitive after the first quarter. The game ended at the end of the first quarter. Wizards trailed at the end of the first quarter, 35-24, and that was it. The Wizards never held a lead the rest of the game, trailed by at least 12 points for the entirety of the second half. So the rest of this series will be played. I get that. You know, the Wizards season didn't end on Wednesday night. I get that. And given where the Wizards were, 17-32 and in the regular season, then came the 17-6 and surge to end the regular season. You never say never. I understand that. And if ever there was going to be a team that as an eight seed overcame a 2-0 deficit to a one seed in a best of seven first round series. Remember, that hasn't happened yet since the NBA expanded the first round of the playoffs to best of seven. It would be this Wizards team because that's the way this team has operated this year. When you're ready to bury this team, when you're ready to strangle this team, the team busts out and you want to give it a big hug. So let's see what happens. But no, uh, I didn't have a lot of faith going into the series to begin with. I never liked the matchup. And certainly don't love where things are at right now. Wizards down 2-0, game three at Capital One Arena, Saturday night at seven o'clock. A Capital One Arena that is set to have an expanded capacity. So hopefully you get a good crowd, a loud crowd, and hopefully the Wizards win. I mean, I'm rooting for the Wizards to win the game. You got back-to-back home games coming up Saturday night, followed by Monday night. But no doubt, off a competitive game one, a non-competitive Game two, very disappointing to see. And now you got to monitor this ankle status of Russell Westbrook to say nothing of how he's doing off having been doused with popcorn. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you. So how about what was out there regarding the Washington football team on Wednesday morning? Boy, I tell you, you never know what's going to pop up with this team. Every day is something new. Every day is a new adventure. We, on Wednesday morning, had multiple tweets, the first of which came from our friend Brent, a.k.a. Burgundy Blog, that Sean Carter, a.k.a. Jay-Z, is a contender to become a minority owner of the Washington football team. Yes, Jay-Z, the rapper, the hip-hop icon, perhaps the GOAT in hip-hop, He's on the short list of candidates to be the GOAT in hip-hop. Jay-Z, a.k.a. Jigga, a.k.a. Jehova, or sometimes just Hova, whatever you want to call him, that guy, a contender to become a minority owner of the Washington football team. Burgundy Blog tweeted that Jay-Z is, quote, actively divesting assets to position himself 
end quote, to purchase a stake in the Washington football team. Now, before we go any further, (laughs) the jokes just write themselves, don't they? Jay-Z and Dan Snyder. I mean, come on. That visual is priceless. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you. Would Danny start trying to dress all cool, all hip-hop, to fit in with Jay-Z? Like, would the Danny start wearing baggy jeans and starter jackets and fubu just to try to fit in with Jay-Z? Would Danny start talking like Jay-Z and dropping Jay-Z lines whenever Dan speaks publicly? Please, oh pretty please, make this all happen. But anyway, this is, as many of you listening likely know, far from the first time that Jay-Z has come up in relation to sports. Jay-Z was a minority owner of the New Jersey slash Brooklyn Nets for years, uh, January 2004 to April 2013. Jay-Z in 2008 founded Rock Nation, which is a full-service agency and sports and entertainment empire. Rock Nation in August 2019 entered into a partnership with the NFL. Uh, the partnership has to do with Rock Nation helping out the NFL with its live game experiences and also the league's social justice efforts. You know, a lot of people saw the NFL entering into this agreement with Rock Nation as a way to shut up all the Colin Kaepernick backers. And there were plenty of people who were not happy with Jay-Z for doing this deal with the NFL. But the point here is Jay-Z has been involved in sports for a while in a variety of ways. By the way, Jay-Z had to sell off his shares in the Nets due to Rock Nation beginning to represent pro athletes. And Jay-Z actually already has ties to the Washington football team. So you may know this, but you probably don't because this is not the kind of thing that got a lot of attention when it happened. But the Washington football team in November 2020 hired Greg Resch as chief financial officer, right? The Washington football team has undergone a transformation over the last year plus, not just in terms of football operations, but also in terms of business operations, right? That was spearheaded by the hiring of Jason Wright as team president. Well, in November 2020, Washington hired this guy, Greg Resch, as chief financial officer. Who is Greg Resch? Well, Greg Resch was the CFO of Rock Nation from April 2018 to March 2020. Resch also is a guy who is pseudo-local. Uh, he has ties to Baltimore, really. He was a graduate of Towson University, got his MBA at Loyola in Baltimore. But yeah, Washington's current CFO is the former CFO of Rock Nation. Additionally, my pal, my homie, my jigger, uh, Kevin Sheehan, right? The Kevin Sheehan Show podcast. Uh, he on Wednesday tweeted that the Washington football team has been working with Rock Nation, quote, for a while, end quote, and that Rock Nation was influential in the team hiring Jason Wright as team president and also essentially leaking things to the New York Times. And that's notable for this reason. The New York Times, during Dan Snyder's feud with the then disgruntled minority owners of the team, who are, of course, minority owners of the team no more, talking about Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith, broke a lot of news and did a lot of reporting on the feud. And it was kind of odd, right? Like, why would the New York Times care about an ownership feud regarding the owners of the Washington football team? And yet the New York Times kept breaking all kinds of stuff when it came to the ownership turmoil for Washington. Well, this apparently was part of the reason. Jay-Z, obviously, New York Times, 
Jay-Z, Rock Nation, the influence on the Washington football team led to the Washington football team leaking things to the New York Times. Not sure what the strategy was behind that, but apparently there was something to that in terms of Washington having this relationship already with Rock Nation. So what does all of this mean? Where is all of this going? So since Dan Snyder bought out Dwight Shore, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith, there has been plenty of speculation about whether Dan wants and or needs new minority partners. Remember, Dan bought out Shaw, Rothman, and Smith at a discounted price of $875 million, but with a $450 million debt waiver for which the NFL's finance committee made a special exemption. It's unclear whether Dan has to have new minority investors. Now, on the one hand, Danny is not among the richest of the Richie Riches in the NFL. So you could make the argument, well, yeah, Dan is rich in comparison to you and me, but his estimated net worth is somewhere in the two billions of dollars. Uh, that's not nearly as high as a lot of the other Richie Riches in the NFL and pro sports in general get to. So it may well be that Danny needs some help when it comes to owning the Washington football team. But on the other hand, the NFL's new media rights deals may make it so that the Donny needing minority investors is obsolete. Understand the math here. The NFL on March 18th announced the signing of new long-term television contracts with media partners Amazon, CBS, ESPN, ABC, Fox, and NBC. The agreements run from 2023 through 2033, though they reportedly include outs after the 2029 season. The total package reportedly is an 11-year, $113 billion package. That works out to $10.27 billion per year. The NFL, under its previous national television deals, was making about $5 billion per year. So the NFL, in this latest go-round of national television negotiations, more than doubled its annual revenue in terms of national television money, from $5 billion to $10.27 billion. So if you weren't already one of the richest, richiest riches, you're about to become one of the at least richier, richie riches if you're a guy like Dan Snyder because of, again, the more than doubling of the league's annual revenue in terms of national television money. And none of this, by the way, includes the DirecTV Sunday ticket package for which DirecTV pays the NFL $1.5 billion per year in a contract that's set to expire after the 2022 season. So who knows where that's going? And you can add to all of this sports gambling revenue and the windfall that that's going to be. And the Donnie is about to become an even richer, richier rich than he could have ever imagined. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, it is going to be a happy Thanksgiving, at least for you, Donnie boy. So I don't know that Danny has to have minority investors, but put all of that aside, Jay-Z potentially becoming a minority owner of the Washington football team. This, to me, is a classic case of something that is very interesting, but not necessarily significant. First of all, you have to wonder if someone of Jay-Z's stature is even truly interested in becoming a minority owner of an NFL team. You know, a guy like Jay-Z, you would think, is thinking bigger, i.e. majority ownership, although minority ownership has been used as a path to majority ownership in the NFL. But even if Jay-Z became a minority owner of the Washington football team, well, then what? I mean, Dan Snyder still would be the majority owner. He still would be the guy. He still would be the big macher. 
You know, it's not like Jay-Z would be able to dictate football or business operations. Please have nothing to do with football operations, okay? We've dealt enough with that, ownership dictating football operations. But like specific to business ops, could Jay-Z say influence business operations? Sure. But ultimately, this would still be Dan's team. Remember, the ownership breakdown of the Washington football team upon Dan buying out Dwight Shore, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith this past April is Dan Snyder owning 80.958% of the Washington football team. Then Dan's sister, Michelle, owns 12.552%. And their mother, Arlette Snyder, owns 6.489%. The Danny is the man. You talk about a majority owner. That's majority ownership, 80.958%. And the other two owners are Dan's sister and mother. So even if this were to happen and we're a ways away from it happening, I'm not sure truly how big of a deal this actually would be. But something that Jay-Z as a minority owner of the Washington football team could bring to the table is cachet. And I was thinking about this. So Washington, of course, is in the midst of a quest, a seemingly never-ending quest for a new stadium. One of the real shames of games at FedEx Field, right, has been how sparsely attended they have been and how bad the environments have been, mainly, of course, because Washington has been such a bad team. Well, think about the following things. One, the team hopefully getting better under Ron Rivera. Two, a new stadium with a reasonable capacity in a great location that people are excited about. And three, megastars like Jay-Z and his wife, Beyonce, being involved with the team and adding a pizzazz and star power to the team. Think about all those things happening at the same time. What might that do for Washington football team games? Washington football team games would become events, would become these grandiose occurrences, the likes of which we have not had here for Washington games since the heyday of the Redskins at RFK Stadium in the 1980s and early 1990s, especially if the new stadium is a great thing, right, in a great spot, people are excited about it. And it's not built to compete with Jerry World in terms of the capacity. So actually having a ticket to a Washington football team home game means something. And there is more of that RFK stadium-like intimacy. If you have that in conjunction with the team being better under Don Ron, in conjunction with a megastar, and that's what he is, a megastar and Jay-Z with his megastar wife, Beyonce, being at all the home games, bringing all their celebrity friends by, you know, there's the potential here for Washington football team home games to become real events, to become something really, truly special. So I could see Jay-Z as a Washington football team minority owner really helping to propel the team in that regard. But ultimately, this team belongs to Vadani. And that doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. And my God, I cannot tell you how much it has to happen if this does happen, Jay-Z becoming a minority owner. Vadani in baggy jeans and a starter jacket and some Timberlands. Please make it happen. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Exactly.
I have said many times over the years when it comes to contracts in the NFL, there are the headlines and then there are the realities. And so often what you initially hear or read regarding an NFL contract is not truly what the NFL contract ends up being. So you have to wait and see until the contract is fully processed and pops up on the NFL contract sites, you know, talking about overthecap.com, spotrack.com, until you can really assess, okay, is this a good deal or a bad deal? What exactly are the terms of the deal, etc.? Well, the details are out regarding the two latest contracts of significance that the Washington football team has signed players to. Talking about the free agent contracts for offensive tackle Charles Leno Jr. and free safety Bobby McCain. So for Charles Leno Jr., it's a one-year deal with just $3 million fully guaranteed, a $1.5 million base salary, and a salary cap hit of $3.97 million. For Bobby McCain, check out these details. One-year deal, just $450,000 fully guaranteed at signing. That's it. A base salary of just $995,000 and a salary cap hit of just $1.46 million. In today's NFL, for a potential starting free safety, never mind a guy who can also play some nickel corner, that is a steal of a deal. One year, $450,000 fully guaranteed at signing. I mean, Bobby McCain is eminently cuttable. Not that I expect Washington to cut him, but keep that in mind here. And so it got me to thinking, about Washington's offseason through a prism of, well, what about the contracts and where the team now is when it comes to the NFL salary cap? And here's a big picture thought that should put a smile on your face if you're a Washington football team fan. So Washington this offseason has signed, in terms of free agents of prominence, Ryan Fitzpatrick, William Jackson III, Curtis Samuel, Adam Humphreys, Charles Leno Jr., and Bobby McCain has re-signed Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, Cam Sims, and Dustin Hopkins, has traded for Eric Flowers, and has franchise-tagged Brandon Sheriff. And yet, the Washington football team, as we speak on this Thursday, is number seven in the NFL in effective salary cap space per over the cap. Washington came into this offseason with a bunch of cap space Washington still has a bunch of cap space. And remember, the salary cap is set to shoot back up for the 2022 season. Washington has done a masterful job this offseason of making a bunch of moves, I believe upgrading the roster, but actually not spending that much money. You know, you look at the specifics of these deals, the Ryan Fitzpatrick deal, a potential bargain of a deal. One year, $10 million, includes $6 million guaranteed at signing. That's it. You have the deal that Washington gave to William Jackson III. And this is for real money, no doubt. Three years, $40.5 million, $26 million in guaranteed money. But William Jackson's contract has an AAV, an average annual value of $13.5 million. That is 10th among NFL cornerbacks. So, you know, it's not nothing, the money that Washington gave William Jackson III. It's top 10 money, but, you know, it's not like top five money. This isn't, say, like the Landon Collins signing where Washington paid top five money to a guy who pretty clearly has not been a top five safety over his first two seasons with the team. 
The Curtis Samuel contract, three years, $34.5 million, $21.5 million fully guaranteed at signing. Again, that's real money. I'm not trying to tell you that it isn't, but the Curtis Samuel AAV, average annual value of $11.5 million, isn't even in the top 20 for receivers in the NFL. How about the Adam Humphreys contract? Adam Humphreys got signed by Washington to a one-year deal with a mere $150,000 fully guaranteed at signing, a $990,000 base salary, and a salary cap hit of $1.19 million. Peanuts. I mean, absolute peanuts there for Adam Humphreys. You look at these re-signings of significance. Taylor Heineke, Kyle Allen, Cam Sims, Dustin Hopkins. All of these contracts, nothing contracts. Washington re-signed Kyle Allen as an exclusive rights-free agent. Those deals are always nothing. The tender that Kyle Allen signed, $850,000. That's it. Eight hundred fifty grand is Kyle Allen's number for this upcoming season. Taylor Heineke did get re-signed to a two-year contract. Remember, he had been set to become a restricted free agent. Washington re-signed Heineke back in February. The details, though, of the Heineke contract are telling. Two years, $4.75 million, but just $1.5 million fully guaranteed at signing. Base salaries of just a $1 million in 2021, $1.5 million in 2022. Cam Sims was a restricted free agent who Washington tendered at a right of first refusal level, i.e. a low round tender level. He ended up signing the tender just $2.133 million. And Dustin Hopkins is a kicker. So he got a kicker contract, which is basically nothing money. I'm not telling you all these guys are all pros. They're not. But like, listen to the steals of deals that Washington was able to engineer for so many of these guys. The trade for Eric Flowers. Remember the specifics of that trade. So Washington, in the days leading up to the 2021 NFL draft, traded away the first of its two seventh round picks to the Miami Dolphins for Flowers and the penultimate pick in the draft. So basically, you swap seventh round picks and Washington got back Eric Flowers and the Dolphins picked up a decent chunk of the money owed to Flowers for the upcoming season. He was said to get paid $9 million in 2021, but the Dolphins and Flowers agreed to a contract restructure by which he got a $6 million signing bonus from the Dolphins. So Washington is only on the hook for $3 million of Eric Flowers in 2021. The one big money move, truly big money move, massive money move, and it's not a move that I like, was franchise tagging Brandon Sheriff. And getting franchise tag for a second consecutive year, it is the non-exclusive franchise tag for a second straight year, Brandon Sheriff is set to make $18.036 million for the upcoming season of having made $15.03 million under the terms of a non-exclusive franchise tag tender for the 2020 season. So yes, $33 plus million guaranteed over a two-season stretch for, wait for it, a guard. And the other one's a guard. Yes, thank you, Jay Gruden. So that's the one huge money move of the offseason. It's not a move that I like for all the reasons we've discussed. But even with that, and even with the more significant free agent contracts that Washington has handed out, you know, those for William Jackson III and Curtis Samuel, Washington still, as we speak on this Thursday, is seventh in the NFL in effective salary cap space 
ProOverTheCap.com. And this is where this guy, Rob Rogers, really deserves credit. Rob Rogers is the Washington football team's senior vice president of football administration. He spent 25 seasons with the Carolina Panthers, 1995 through 2019. Rogers was known as a contract guy, a salary cap guy, and also an analytics guy. He's a 1993 graduate of Harvard University. He is essentially the replacement of Eric Schaefer in the Washington football team front office. He's the guy who does Washington's player contracts now. And you have to say he has done a tremendous job over these last two off-seasons now. Because you go back to last off-season, right? All of those bargain basement deals that worked out, right? Those for Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick, Ronald Darby, Wes... We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Weitzer, Cornelius Lucas, etc. We'll see how these deals all work out. That's true. I mean, if all these guys flop, then it doesn't matter the terms under which you got these guys under contract. But just think about that. All these moves, I mean, I think we all would say, maybe to varying degrees, but we all would say, right, Washington is better right now as compared to where it was at at the end of last season, and yet still has ample salary cap space. Again, seventh in the NFL in effective cap space per overthecap.com. Does this guarantee anything? No, but this is how you want your football team to operate in the offseason. Effective, smart, and fiscally responsible. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. 
All right, very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now, Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington. You can hear him, as I know plenty of you do, on the Washington Football Talk podcast with J.P. Finley and Mitch Tischler. You can read Pete's work on NBCSportsWashington.com. Pete, it's great to talk to you, man. How you doing? Doing well, Al. I, uh, I'm going to say this not because I'm overly talented, but because I talk about a team that a lot of people care about, so I get asked to do a good amount of podcasts and radio hits. But when you texted me today, that was one where I kind of sat up in my chair and said, oh, this is this is a big deal. So I'm glad to be here and ready to talk about whatever topics you got for me. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on so much. Before we get to the actual football, uh, your thoughts on the news of the day on Wednesday. Reports that Jay-Z is a contender to become a minority owner of the Washington football team. You know, I saw your tweet that you can't wait to see Beyonce wearing a Terry McLaurin jersey. Do you think that she'd go McLaurin or Cameron Cheeseman? Uh, she'd probably have uh, one in burgundy and one in white, and then she would alternate based on where the game is, et cetera. Okay. Um, but that's a good call. I forgot about her love for Cameron Cheeseman. Yeah, I mean, the thoughts are that'd be really damn cool. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you wouldn't necessarily have a, a, a massive stake or really be influencing things too much, but I think it'd just be really awesome for him to raise the brand of this team and make it more relevant pop culture-wise. So I'm all in on JC potentially buying in uh, at whatever stake he can get. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it would be cool. It would be interesting. I'm not sure how significant it would be, but it would be a nice thing to kind of have as part of the ownership group, especially off all the ugliness uh, with the ownership situation of the last year. All right, so we on Tuesday had the first Washington football team OTA practice open in the media this offseason. And one of the things that really stood out during Ron Rivera's post-practice Zoom press conference was him like raving about Ryan Fitzpatrick. Now, granted, Ron got asked about Ryan quite a bit, but Ron had a lot of good things to say about Ryan including a particular moment in the practice, a back shoulder throw to Cam Sims. You wrote about that. What was significant about that throw and what it could be a sign of? Yeah, I mean, it was the type of throw, and I wrote about this in the story, that you're used to seeing in the middle of fall, not necessarily late May with a quarterback who just got here and is in his first practice throwing to a receiver he barely knows. That's what stood out, first of all, just from the looks of it. It looked like a third quarter against Dallas on the road caliber type of completion and I think it spoke to and Ron Rivera highlighted this as well how Fitzpatrick can impact a group of young players I mean last year you saw the offense not necessarily take off but play better with Alex Smith just because he knew what to do every second of every play and he get guys in the right position and throw them open now with Fitzpatrick they somehow found a guy who has that exact amount of experience they're both 2005 draft class members and he's damn smart and has seen plenty of football too but you combine that with his willingness to be a little more aggressive. So then you start thinking, all right, he can elevate these young guys like Cam Sims, like McLaurin, and make him even better and, you know, have them in the right spots. But also you can make sure those spots are further down the field for bigger gains. So for Fitzpatrick to connect on a pass like that in the first hour of his first kind of practice with the Burgundy goal, I thought was pretty significant. And uh, clearly the head coach, I think, agreed with me. And Fitzpatrick talked about it too. So it was definitely a highlight and one that hinted at maybe how this quarterback could impact this particular group. Yeah, I mean, I think we all recognize it's always a danger this time of year, right, to get seduced by things in these practices and you end up looking like a fool, you know, months later. But I don't think you're wrong to make an issue out of that throw. That was a really nice play, and it is perhaps symbolic of what's to come here. And when it comes to Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, and I don't want to overstate things, but to me, like listening to Ron talk about Ryan, I get the sense that Ron views Ryan as almost like a singular collection of the best of the qualities of Washington's many quarterbacks from last season. Like, Ryan brings to the table the good stuff about Alex Smith, right? The experience and the leadership. But, you know, unlike Alex, Ryan will throw deep 
and can run. You know, Ryan brings to the table maybe the best thing about Taylor Heineke, the moxie. But unlike Taylor, you know, Ryan is experienced and Ryan doesn't have a pension for getting hurt. That kind of a thing. Do you think that's an accurate way of looking at Ryan Fitzpatrick? Do you think Ron perhaps sees Ryan Fitzpatrick that way? Yeah, that's funny. I was going to try and put that in the story, but I was kind of having trouble wording it to make sure it worked and it's kind of an easier thing to talk about. But yeah, and I think he kind of has, you know, Ron always talked about Dwayne's arm strength. He didn't really mention anything else because there wasn't much else to mention, but uh, Ryan, his arm isn't exactly a cannon, but it's still for a 38-year-old guy, he can still move it downfield. So if you look at him as a mix of all these guys, then yes, I think that's a completely accurate way to look at it. And that's partly why I think it's going to be a good upgrade for them at quarterback. I'm not expecting him to have necessarily a top five season like his QBR and some other stats point to him having. But just in this city, it's going to be a big jump from Alex Smith leading 12 play drives that feature a bunch of six yard passes or Dwayne having, you know, maybe one big play here, but then four awful plays. Um, I think it's going to be just a really good step upward for an offense that just hasn't been used to even average quarterback play, and I think he can be above average. So uh, the mix of all three, I think that's a really uh, fair way to evaluate the situation. The notion of Ryan Fitzpatrick being the second best starting quarterback in the NFC East, I mean, if we all agree Dak Prescott is number one, is it wrong to say that Fitzpatrick, at least as things stand right now, is number two? I take him number two. Um, I would take him number two for 2021, but with what New York has done in surrounding Jones with some better weapons, this looks like his make or break year. Maybe if you're playing the long game, you could get some good odds on Jones being the guy who actually emerges a little more. But um, behind Dak, I think Fitzpatrick's definitely the guy I would take out of the four. And of course, Jalen Hurts is interesting too with his speed and his mobility and, and some of the things he did throwing. But I think Jones and Hurts are definitely below old Fitz. We're talking Washington football team with Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington. So all of that, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick gushing aside, I-, I am personally a proponent of having a quarterback competition this summer. I'm not sure to what extent we're going to have one, but I would like to see it as Fitzpatrick versus Heineke versus Allen. May the best man win. We know that Fitzpatrick has begun the offseason as the QB1. Do you believe that there is a competition, as Ron has said, or is there not really a competition? So last year, he said kind of a competition, and then Dwayne eventually in the starting job. I don't think there's really a competition at all. This year, I think he's going to say there's a competition, and it's going to be closer to a real one, but not necessarily a, a true one either. Um, I think you have a good lineup here with Fitzpatrick, and if he goes out and has issues, you can move to Heineke, who the staff clearly likes. But um, I mean, one thing I did notice at OTAs, Heineke, it's weird. There's been so much talk about that one game, but that's really all we saw from him is that one game and then a couple quarters against Carolina. So he's still pretty much new to all the reporters and all the people who know this team. So watching him in that practice, I was kind of a little skeptical. Like, was that just some playoff magic against a defense? We had no idea who was going to start. Was it just a a one-night wonder? But he had some of that improvisation, some of that creativity, and he showed it in Ashburn, too, with a fancy rollout where a defender was in his face, and he dropped down sidearm, really creative, really smart to avoid a sack and keep uh, you know, a drive going, that's the type of play a coach loves when you're in a bad spot and you figure out a way to just make a, a small positive game. He had a big throw to Deami Brown. He had some throws in the middle of the field where maybe necessarily his arm strength isn't that good, but he's so smart and able to anticipate that he can still find those guys for their break. So I do think this Patrick is the pretty much unquestioned starter, but Heineke is, is going to do everything he can to push him. And if it's Patrick slips up in any way, especially in the year, uh, I think Heineke will be a good guy to back him up, but 
come week one, I would be pretty confident saying 14 is the start. So it sounds like you do believe Kyle Allen, at least for now, is the number three out of the three-headed Washington quarterback monster. Yeah, um, it was noticeable to me that he was so involved in practice. I kind of just maybe just naively expected him to be a little more limited, and I could also be swayed by how we were just so slow with Alex Smith and how the coaches really deliberately deliberately brought him along. I mean, it's not exactly a fair comparison because Smith had all the stuff after the surgery, but they both had gruesome injuries, and I just thought, Alan, okay, they might have him in individuals, but there he was playing 11-on-11, pass rushers all around him, but I still think he's definitely number three. But that number three I feel more confident in after seeing him on Tuesday as opposed to, like, you know, Steven Montez Renaissance or some other veteran being at it. I think this is the room fits Heineke Allen in that order for the time being. All right, so the attendance on Tuesday, a lot made of this, and I thought justifiably so, 86 players showing up for this voluntary practice, especially given that the NFLPA has been pushing for players to boycott in-person off-season workouts. I thought 86 players showing up was tremendous, and I thought it was a sign that this whole Ron Rivera culture overhaul is taking effect. It doesn't mean that, you know, the culture is fixed. It doesn't mean that, you know, you, you plant the flag and victory has been established. But I, I saw it as kind of a sign of, okay, things are getting better because you're not going to have this with every team this offseason. What, what about you, though? Where are you on something like that? Like, how significant to you was that attendance of 86 players on Tuesday? Yeah, I don't think it was significant in terms of, you know, did they get better in terms of beating the Chargers in week one? Like, there was no tackling, the offense was still barely installed, etc. But if you want to apply it to the rebuild, I do think it's significant. I do think it shows yet another sign of Ron has these players buying in. They like him. They want to play for him. They want to impress him. And he has put together, you know, a vibe in that building. We heard it from William Jackson, who came from Cincinnati. He's saying there's just an energy here. Uh, I asked Eric Flowers, what was it like coming here after being away in Miami, and he said it's way more competitive compared to his first in, in D.C., which was only in 2019. Uh, Fitzpatrick said there's just good juice. So I think there's a lot of guys who came in and are impressed with what Rivera has. So, yeah, um, there's still a lot of work to be done to make this a good football team. But in terms of making it a better football organization, I think having 85-plus members at a voluntary practice in May when the union is arguing that maybe we shouldn't be there did mean something, and I think Ron Rivera is, is – Super pleased with that, as he should be. Chase Young and Montez Sweat not attending Tuesday's OTA practice. Do you care? Does it matter? I care a tiny bit. It matters probably not at all. Of course, you want to have two of the building blocks there. Um, but Chase is so beloved already and did so much as a rookie that I think these coaches have the utmost respect for him, and they know he'll be ready. And same with Montez. Like, these dudes are uh, – Put your nose down and work. They're not going to goof around. They're not going to, you know, necessarily get in trouble. I don't expect them to be partying anywhere or doing anything stupid. Uh, I think it kind of just shows that they feel more comfortable doing what they're going to do at home and come training camp and the mandatory stuff later in the offseason. I fully believe they'll be completely fine. So certainly notable just because it was, well, we're looking around. There's this jersey. There's that guy. Hey, the best defender, probably best player on this team is in here. And, oh, his partner in crime isn't either. But, um, yeah, I think in a week or so or whenever they return, we'll all forget about it and uh, realize that it was not a big deal at all. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, Ron, on Tuesday, this made me laugh. He gets asked about releasing Morgan Moses and Jaron Christen, and, and Ron talks about wanting the team to get younger. And, and I understand, Samuel Cosme is young, but Morgan Moses is the same age as Charles Leno Jr. and Cornelius Lucas. Christen is in his mid-20s. So this wasn't about age. We get why Kristen was cut. It's really mostly about Morgan Moses here. Now that we're a week removed from this, 
why truly do you think Ron cut Moses? You know, I'm, I'm not mad at Morgan Moses being cut, but I, I do find it interesting. And it does feel like there's maybe more to Moses being cut than we know. But w- what's your take on this? Yeah, the Moses cut was the first of Rivera's I'm getting rid of everything in Ashburn decisions that I was taken aback by and probably disagreed with. Like Alex Smith, Josh Norman, Trent Williams, Kerrigan, all those guys, they all have their various situations. I was cool with them getting rid of all of them and other guys like Geis and Peterson, et cetera. But Moses, I love Sam Cosby. I'm glad they drafted him. But tackles, it strikes me as a spot where you should want more, not less, and you shouldn't be rushing a second rounder into the starting job for no reason. So I'm thinking, you know, Morgan wasn't, a, you know, an outlandish guy. He wasn't necessarily too, you know, critical of anything, even in his postseason pressure. He's saying, I love what we're building here. I can't wait to return. But maybe there's just something between him and Ron, some sort of disagreement, whether it was about numbers or about, you know, when they signed Leno, he didn't necessarily like that. And then Cosme gets, you know, picked up too. So there had to have been a disagreement because, sure, you want to get younger. Moses is only 30. That's nothing for a tackle. He's as durable as it gets. And he plays pretty well. I'm not you know, making him out to be Canton-bound, but he's a good right tackle, and your offense can win with him. So Ron, I think, might have uh, clashed with him in some way. That's the only thing I can think. I mean, even the money, you can put some guaranteed money on there. They have plenty of it. So it had to have been, in my mind, some sort of personality thing that Ron just said, all right, you're, you're questioning me on X, Y, or Z. That's fine. I've drafted a guy. I signed a guy. You're out of here, pal. Yeah, it, it does feel that way. Final question for you as we approach Memorial Day weekend. Uh, you're allowed to change your answer in the future, but just as things stand right now, with the offseason mostly, although not entirely complete, best guess, what do you think Washington's record is in 2021? What kind of a season is Washington poised to have this upcoming season? The main snag in all this is that their schedule is just loaded with stud signal callers, but we were doing this on our podcast and we got like halfway through. We were at the bye week and I had them at five and three and then we took a break for like 20 minutes. And I was thinking to myself, man, what am I doing? I have them at five and three. This is just ridiculous. You know, the Al Galdi's, the Dan Steinberg's, all these guys who've been around here just going to laugh at me. I'm the classic young kid who, you know, attaches to one playoff season and then gets over his skis. But then I thought, I've liked basically every acquisition. I like Curtis Samuel. I love William Jackson. I like Adam Humphreys. I like Fitzpatrick. I like the draft. I like that they're building around. I like Chase Young in year two, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm okay with prognosticating a pretty damn good year where they're relevant again in December. So I have them, I think on the pod, I had them at 11, what is this, 11, 5, and 1, 11, 6, and 1, whatever the new numbers are. I'm too stupid to think about them right now. Um, I did the tie as partly a joke. I'll probably have them at 10 wins come the season. Um, again, because their opponents can be pretty dicey and, and they might get, you know, burnt a little bit here and there, but. I think 10 wins and fighting for that division title is completely reasonable. And I don't think fans should be scared to predict that because they have a professional head coach with a roster that is really taking shape and a quarterback who, as long as he does what he's done the past couple of years, can absolutely win you some games. So I'm fine with 10 wins and I don't feel too stupid for it just quite yet. Although it's possible for that to change come about week three. I don't think you should feel stupid, man. I think you're right to be optimistic. I know I'm bullish on the team. I I mean, I think it's possible the team is better this upcoming season, but the record or at least the winning percentage is worse. But you think about it, they did as they did last season, despite the quarterback play as a whole being awful, like the worst in the league. Washington had the worst total team QBR in the NFL, and yet still Went seven and nine and won the division. If the quarterback play is just like middle of the pack, which it should be, and maybe even better with Fitzpatrick, why can't they have, say, a nine, ten win season this upcoming year? I don't think that's ridiculous at all. 
Yeah, I mean, and then the coach had cancer, and there's no offseason for him to influence his program. Like, there are a lot of reasons. And sure, the easy counter is the NFCs won't be that bad. Yeah, that's fair, but I also don't know if it's going to be that good. It's not like it's going to turn into the biggest gauntlet ever. So the schedule is the one main con to predicting any sort of real success for Washington, but I think there's more in the pros and some very good reasoning in the pros to say 10 plus wins and another playoff berth. And that is why I'm here saying 10 plus wins and maybe another playoff. There you go. Well, people can laugh at us in a few months. For now, though, we will be optimistic. Pete Haley, NBC Sports Washington. Catch him on the Washington Football Talk podcast. Check out his work on NBCSportsWashington.com. Good to catch up with you, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah, this was fun. I appreciate it. And I look forward to hopefully a few more appearances like this in the future. Well, if you're like me and are a lifelong Capitals fan, this week has been all about the why. As RG3 said years ago, know your why. We as Caps fans are trying to know our why. Why the Capitals lost in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs once again. And what should be next? The fallout continuing from the Capitals five game first round series loss to the Boston Bruins. Third consecutive season. Yes. In which the Caps have been ousted in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. On Tuesday, we had Caps players speaking to reporters via Zoom in the final widespread media availability for Caps players this season. I, on Wednesday's podcast, episode 71, took it through the best of what was said. Well, on Wednesday, we heard from Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan and Head Coach Peter Laviolette as they spoke to reporters via Zoom. And the sense that I get listening to McClellan is that he attributes this season's first-round exit more to injuries and absences than like fundamental flaws with the roster. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I'm sure a lot of you listening have been thinking a lot about all of this. And I think that McClellan is mostly right with what he's saying. I do think that the Caps need to get younger and faster, but I also don't think that the Caps just have to, you know, blow the whole thing up. And I said this on Monday's podcast, episode 69. But if you take a step back and you let the anger simmer and you look at things objectively here, The Caps in the regular season finished tied for fifth in the NHL with 77 points and were top five in the NHL in five-on-five goals, power play efficiency, and penalty kill efficiency. It's not just that the Caps were good in the regular season, it's that the Caps were great in the regular season. Tied for fifth in the NHL in points, fourth in the NHL in five-on-five goals, third in the NHL in power play efficiency, fifth in the NHL, and penalty kill efficiency. The Caps didn't suck in the regular season. They weren't too old or too slow in the regular season. And remember, all of these top five rankings that I just took you through, those rankings came despite a bunch of guys missing games for a bunch of different reasons during the regular season, right? Injuries, COVID-19, you had the seven-game Tom Wilson suspension during which the Caps went 7-0-0. It's hard for me to just ignore all of that and just erase all of that from my memory. So I don't think that McClellan is wrong to be speaking as he's speaking. Here was McClellan on Wednesday. You know, coming into playoffs, um, you know, I think, you know, we ran into some injury issues. Uh, I thought, I still thought we played good the first three games and then we ran out of gas and didn't perform well in the last two games. And specific to the running out of gas, I mean, remember all that the Caps had to deal with in the latter stages of the cap season. The Evgeny Kuznetsov, Ilya Samsonov, one game suspension, and then COVID-19 absence 
Alex Ovechkin dealt with injury. Nicholas Backstrom dealt with injury. Lars Eller dealt with injury. TJ Oshie dealt with injury. Defenseman John Carlson and Justin Schultz dealt with injury. You get the idea. The caps were banged up to an extent that was really ridiculous. And I know every NHL team is dealing with injuries late in the season. I get that. But it sure seemed like the caps dealt with an inordinate number of injuries. To say nothing of, again, old Kuzi and old Ilya getting themselves suspended for a game and then each guy missing a good chunk of time due to COVID-19 protocols. But what about this issue of trying to get younger and faster? Because there's no doubt, watching that series against the Bruins, it sure felt like the Caps were a step behind Boston for way too much of that series. Here was McClellan on Wednesday on the Caps potentially needing to get younger and faster. No, I I, I don't... I mean, I, I guess we're always lo- we will be looking to add younger players. Yes, uh, you know, I think you just can't force that into your lineup. I think we had a gap where we didn't have players to fill in, so we try to fill, you know, with uh, with outside players, free agents. Um, you know, I think we got some guys coming that we can t- consider. You know, I think you know we're looking for opportunities. I think Sprong had a good year this year. He's a good young player. Um, you're looking to get him more ice time. Marty Ferriarvi, I think, is ready. Uh, Alexiev uh, should be able to play games. I don't know that he's a full-time player yet. I'd like to see Pilon get some games. Uh, we're going to have two young goalies. So, so I think there's opportunity to add youth to the lineup. Um, I don't think um, that we are, you know, we'll get younger, uh, but we're still going to have a veteran team because that's our core. And that brings us to the Alex Ovechkin unrestricted free agency. Like, you can't, on the one hand, be advocating for the Caps to blow it all up, and then, on the other hand, saying, yeah, but you got to re-sign Ovechkin. One does not go with the other. So, if you're on board with the Caps re-signing Ovechkin, and I don't know of anyone who really isn't on board with that, then the Caps need to maintain what they have here and just try to tweak it and retool it to where the Caps can be better and good to go and hopefully make it past the first round, maybe even the second round in the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs. Alex Ovechkin, yes, finally is about to be a free agent. The 13-year, $124 million contract extension that he signed in January 2008, the first $100 million deal in NHL history. That contract now is up. The widespread expectation is that Ovi will resign with the Caps. He certainly suggested as much on Tuesday. We talked about that on Wednesday's installment of the podcast. We do know that Ovechkin himself is handling the contract negotiations. Here was McClellan on Wednesday on where things stand with Ovi. Yeah, I think both sides are interested. We want Ovi, the ownership wants Ovi to finish his career here. Everybody wants him to finish his career. He's saying the same thing. I think we'll get it worked out in the end. All right, and there's no reason that that shouldn't be the case. Yes, Ovechkin is going into his age 36 season. Yes, Ovechkin did miss 11 games this past regular season, four games due to COVID-19 protocol, seven games due to a leg injury, but the guy still ended up being very productive. Alex Ovechkin, even though he played in just 45 of the Caps' 56 regular season games, led the Caps with 24 goals, led the Caps with 15 even strength goals, and then was good in the postseason. You know, you can't say that there were many Caps players who played really well in that five-game first-round series loss to Boston. Ovechkin, though, played well. Over the five games, two goals, two assists, team-best 20 shots on goal, team-best 25 hits, number five on the Caps was Ovi on five-on-five shot attempt percentage per NHL.com at 54.7. But this is the thing. If you're talking about blowing it all up, okay, fine. You know, I'm not someone who's anti-blowing it all up in general, okay? I have advocated many times for teams to blow it all up. But I don't see the Capitals as being in that predicament, not yet, especially 
if they're about to plunk down tens of millions of dollars to re-sign Alex Ovechkin. Because that's the thing. Ovechkin may give the Caps a relatively team-friendly deal. You know, there may be somewhat of a hometown discount here. But, you know, you're not re-signing Ovechkin to the same terms that you signed Zdeno Chara this past December, okay? It's going to cost some real money to re-sign Ovechkin. So if you're going to spend real money on a guy going into his age 36 season, then what is this talk about blowing it all up? Like, no, you're trying to keep the band together. Again, you're trying to retool, reload, and hopefully be a better version of yourself come next season. Now, what about Evgeny Kuznetsov? He's going into just his age 29 season. He's locked up for years to come. July 2017, Cap signed Kuznetsov to an eight-year, 62.4 million dollar contract. What are we to make now of that deal? Because yes, Evgeny Kuznetsov was magnificent in the 2018 Stanley Cup playoffs, during which, remember, it was Kuzi, not Ovi, who led the Caps in points, even though Ovi, not Kuzi, won the Conn Smythe Trophy as postseason MVP. But here we are with Kuznetsov off a very disjointed 2020-2021 season for him. He played in just 41 of the Caps' 56 regular season games, and then in just three of the Caps' five games in the Stanley Cup playoffs, dealt with two separate bouts with COVID-19. The first bout, part of that controversy that led to the NHL on January 20th, finding the Caps $100,000 for player violations of the league's COVID-19 protocols, and then came what came late in the season, Kuznetsov's second bout with COVID-19, off him and goaltender Ilya Samsonov having been suspended for a game by the team for being late to a team function. And remember what Kuzi told us on Tuesday. He said that he got COVID-19 despite having been vaccinated, and he gave us this gem of a quote, which I'm still trying to figure out. Quote, if I am going to be the first person with the vaccination and get COVID twice already and get it third time, I don't know. I may be the special one. <laughs> End quote. Yes, Kuzi, you are the special one. And uh, apparently you are aiming for the COVID hattie. We'll see if he gets there. But anyway, what to make of Kuznetsov? Yes, he's so gifted. Yes, he's so talented. But he's a pain in the butt. There's no two ways about it, especially when you factor in his history, right? The cocaine controversy, him having been benched in the past. McClellan on Wednesday on Kuznetsov. It's tough to evaluate uh, his year. I mean, he had COVID twice. You know, I don't fully understand the effects it has on players when they come back. Um, you know, you watch or rumored to have players throughout the league that have had it and have, you know, struggled to find it when they come back from COVID. I guess it's hard for us to determine, you know, what impact that had on his performance. It was inconsistent, I agree, throughout the year. And, you know, we needed more from that position, from that amount of salary that we expend on him. But it, it's tough to evaluate what effect that had on his performance. You know, you talk to him and and try and get an answer. But, uh, you know, I think the reality is I don't have an answer to any of that, just like I don't think anybody, any of the health experts have an, an answer. You know, how does that affect, uh, you know, uh, an athlete aerobically? Um, so we're, you know, we're trying to figure it out. What's, you know, what part is that? What part is inconsistency? What part's the player? Um, you know, we're, we're working through it right now. Yeah, well, you better keep working through it and you better figure something out here because Kuznetsov needs to be unlocked. If he's going to stay with the team, and by the way, I think he probably should Unless there are things behind the scenes that we don't know about, i.e. things are even worse than we think with Kuznetsov, he's too gifted, 
to not keep on your team. Because at this point, if you're going to trade him away, you're getting back pennies on the dollar. And any notion of leaving him unprotected for the June expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken, I mean, I'm sorry, to lose Evgeny Kuznetsov for nothing, that's not the way you do player personnel. Like, that would just be criminal to me, to lose him for nothing. But got to figure out a way to crack the koozie code to where you maximize what you have in the guy. Because he's too talented of a player, and he's performed at too high of a level for what we saw this past season to become what we just come to expect from Kuznetsov. Like, no, what happened this past season is unacceptable. He's got to be available more. He's got to be more of an impact player. Now, what about Ilya Samsonov, old Kuzi's running mate here? So McClellan on Wednesday did get asked about the plan at goaltender moving forward. Is the plan still Ilya Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek? Yeah, I think they progressed. I mean, um, you know, Samsonov has some stuff we're working on with him. I think he's shown the ability that he could be a number one. And, you know, we've expressed what we feel he needs to do to accomplish that. Um, you know, I think he's buying in at this point and, um, hopefully he'll, he'll make progress. We'll monitor his progress through the off season and into the camp and adjust accordingly from there. <laughs> All right. That was great from McClellan. I love the part where he goes, uh, yeah, Samsonov has some, uh, stuff that we're working on with him. You know, Samsonov has some stuff we're working on with him. Yes, exactly. I got a kick out of what McClellan had to say there. So first of all, he doesn't even mention Vitek Vanacek. But when it comes to Ilya Samsonov, I think it is so clear. Samsonov is supposed to be the goaltender of the future. The Caps want him to be the goaltender of the future. But Samsonov, like Kuznetsov, drives the Caps nuts. Samsonov, like, refuses to be the goaltender of the future here, even though it was basically handed to him on a silver platter going into the season, especially with the heart condition that came up for Henrik Lundqvist. The job was there from Samsonov, and he ended up missing a ton of time due to two absences rooted in COVID-19 protocols. He actually dealt with COVID-19 himself at least one time, and he had a hard time with it. He talked about that earlier this season. But it's been like one thing after another with Evgeny Kuznetsov going back to last season when, remember, he was not a part of the restart to the season because he got into an off-ice incident, uh, what was reportedly an ATV accident in Russia. Ilya Samsonov was taken by the Caps with the number 22 pick in the 2015 NHL draft. It's time for him to deliver, and he hasn't been delivering. He hasn't been available nearly enough, And the truth is, when he's played, he hasn't been good enough. You know, at times he's looked good, but at times he hasn't looked so good. And going back to what was a big deal late in the cap season, Kuznetsov and Samsonov. First, each guy getting suspended for a game due to being late to a team function. And then each guy missing each of the cap's next six games, the last four games of the regular season, and then the first two games of the postseason due to COVID-19 protocols. How big of a deal truly was this, especially when you consider the domino effect of the Capitals being down, not just Kuznetsov at center, but Nicholas Backstrom dealt with injury, Lars Eller dealt with injury, and the Caps being down, not just Samsonov at goaltender, but also Vitek Vanacek. Remember, he suffered a lower body injury in the first period of game one against the Bruins, and then never played again in the series. Here was head coach Peter Laviolette on Wednesday on, again, how big of a deal, how big of a problem, truly, the Kuznetsov-Samsonov late season screw-up was. We were dealing with things at the end with regard to the COVID, you know, the 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 discipline thing. I think you rolled past that one. 
it moves into the COVID thing and now you've lost players for a minimum of 14 days and maybe 15 or 16 before they play a game. And that's without conditioning, without being on the ice, without exercise. And so when you're talking about a top center and a possible top goaltender, number one goaltender, I think that those now become uh, something that you're dealing with inside of your locker room. Um, you know, there was, uh, I, I think that, I know everybody's dealing with injuries and so they're not an excuse. We need to win that series, but we're, we're also starting to get tagged with things that are keeping players out of the lineup or minimize, um, use and can't pregame skate, can't, and so we're working through things. We're, we're losing some players during the game and it seemed like centermen mostly. You know, game two, we, we take it into overtime, but we're down to two centermen for you know, eight minutes into the second period and down. And now you're juggling face-offs and D-zone starts against um, some pretty good lines. And, and it's just, I think, a, accumulation of those things. You would typically like it to be quieter. You know, from the, from the first question that you asked to dealing with everything, you'd like it to be a little bit quieter as you're going through the playoffs and a little bit more... Um, Every, everybody's available, and and that, that wasn't the case. No, it was not, and sadly, some of the absence was entirely, or at least mostly, avoidable. One more item to get into here, and that is T.J. Oshie. You know, nobody has a bad thing to say about T.J. Oshie. Captain America, a very productive 2020-2021 season for him, but is it going to end up being his final season with the Capitals. There has been a lot of talk about the Caps potentially leaving Oshie unprotected in the expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken in June. Uh, maybe you trade Oshie because again, like with Kuznetsov, you hate to lose TJ Oshie for nothing. It would hurt to lose Oshie, period, whether he gets taken in the expansion draft or he gets dealt. But if you are looking to get younger and faster, parting with TJ Oshie does make some sense, especially when you consider the money. The Capitals in June 2017 signed Oshie to an eight-year, $47 million contract extension. Next season will be his age 35 season. Now, he is coming off a very good season. That is true. Oshie, this past regular season, played in 53 of the Caps' 56 games, was number one on the Caps with 13 power play goals, was number two on the Caps with 22 goals, was number three on the Caps with 43 points, was number four on the Caps with 21 assists, and he was a good soldier because Oshie, who's a natural right winger, spent a good chunk of time at center this past season due to Evgeny Kuznetsov's COVID-19 absences and Lars Eller dealing with injuries. So none of this has to do with like an indictment of Oshie the guy. It's just an indictment of where Oshie is at in his career. Yes, he was good this past season, but how much longer is he going to be good? And given that contract, is this a path truly that the Caps should want to stay on. McClellan on Wednesday on Oshie. Yeah, I thought he had a great year, you know. I mean, one of his best years. So, I mean, he continues to produce. He continues to, you know, you know, be a big part of uh, what's going on in the room and uh, on the ice. Um, you know, he's a, he's a big part of our organization. I mean, I think we would... It would be it would hurt our team and our organization if we lost him in the expansion draft. I don't know that we've fully made any decisions on that, but uh, ideally we'd like to keep him around. Yes, ideally we would all like to do a lot of things, but how realistic truly is keeping TJ Oshie around? We'll see. It's going to be a really interesting offseason for the Capitals, and it is painful, so painful as a Caps fan to see the Caps out 
in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs once again. But as aggravating as that is, as frustrating as that is, I don't think you need to hit the nuclear button. Not yet, anyway. Especially if you're going to re-sign Alex Ovechkin, and every indication is that the Caps are going to do that. You stay the course, you retool, you reload, you refuel, but you don't have to turn the whole thing upside down here. There's a reason the Caps had the regular season that the team did. The Caps were a good team. They just didn't play that well in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And again, a lot of that had to do with missing so many people, either due to injury or COVID-19-induced absences. Well, hopefully the COVID-19 stuff is going bye-bye, and neither the Caps nor any other team in sports is ever going to have to worry about that again. The Caps, yes, need to get younger, yes, need to get faster, but they don't need to blow it all up. The losing for the Orioles continues, so much so that Mike Elias spoke on Wednesday, although he spoke before this latest loss. So the O's have been losing. Elias spoke about what's going on, and then the O's lost again. But that, my friends, is the way it is supposed to be. The O's are tanking. Don't ever forget that. The goal this season isn't to win. Keep reminding yourself of that if you're an O's fan. 3-2 loss at the Minnesota Twins on Wednesday afternoon to complete a three-game sweep. The O's now have lost nine consecutive games. The O's now are 2-16 and since their 15-16 and start to the season. The O's now are 17-32 and overall. The O's on Wednesday option Dean Kramer to AAA Norfolk. Kramer right now sort of epitomizes what's going on with the Orioles. He's a young player, young starting pitcher, a guy for whom there were high hopes going into the season. And Dean Kramer over nine starts this season has an ERA of 687 and a whip of 166. He in the 7-4 loss at the Twins on Tuesday night gave up five runs in four innings. And so he's been shipped down to AAA Norfolk. And that's the way things are going here. The Orioles are in a rut, and so much of this has to do with the team being bad and the young players uh, not playing so well so far. You know, here and there, you got some guys doing well, like John Means is having an excellent season. Trey Mancini is having a very good season. Anthony Santander, since he came off the 10-day injured list, has been hitting like a madman. But a lot of the younger players are not delivering. And so Mike Elias spoke on Wednesday. This doesn't happen often. It did happen on Wednesday. He is the Orioles executive vice president and general manager. And the message was basically this. Guys, this is supposed to be what's happening. Suck it up and deal with it because hopefully the pain now yields pleasure later. Here you go. Since the the high of John means is no hitter, we've, you know, we've been in a rough patch. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's been tough on everyone involved. Um, and, um, you know, these, these, um, struggles happen in baseball, but they particularly happen with, with young teams and, um, a, a young roster. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, these, uh, these stretches can, can be harder, um, when you have a, a group of young players like we do. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a young roster right now. There's no secret about that. Um, and we've done so purposefully um, with uh, the, the organization strategy dating back to the middle of the 2018 season um, when it was clear that uh, rebuilding the, the club and the roster was necessary, that uh, the, the organization would turn towards young players. Um, and while doing so out of necessity to, to bring more young talent into the organization, also embark on a plan to 
uh, repair and reinvest in our organization's talent acquisition and, and player development uh, pipeline and um, repairing the, the harmony and overall effectiveness of the entire operation. So it was a big task. It is a big task. It remains a very difficult task. Um, and these processes are, are difficult. Um, they don't go perfectly. They don't go smoothly. They require a lot of effort um, and a lot of perseverance and endurance through tough stretches like this. Yeah, and Elias went on and on, but you get the idea. And the point there, and he says it in a nice way, but the point there is suck it up and deal with it because this is what we're doing. What we're doing is hard. What we're doing isn't fun. But what we're doing, hopefully, is going to end up being very rewarding. See the Chicago Cubs. See the Houston Astros. The Orioles made the playoffs three times in five years during the Buck Show Walter, Dan Duquette era, 2012, 2014, and 2016. But the success was largely a house of cards. And everything fell apart in 2017 when the O's went 4-19 and over the team's final 23 games. The O's went from 71-68 and to 75 and 87. And I was screaming for the O's that season to trade away their expensive and aging players. I was screaming for the Orioles to start the teardown that year. The O's didn't do that. The result was disaster. Then came 2018, one of the worst seasons in the history of the franchise. The O's in the final season of the Buck Show Walter Dan Duquette era went 47 and 115. The house of cards came tumbling down. So Mike Elias gets brought in in November 2018, hired as executive vice president and general manager. The Orioles finally go all in on analytics. The Orioles finally start to do things like sign Latin American players, but clearly a teardown was needed. The organization needed to be overhauled, and this is a part of the overhaul. And like I said, it's not fun. All right. So if you can't stomach it, I don't blame you for not wanting to watch it, but understand this is a necessary evil. And I'll grant you, there's no guarantee this is going to pay off. I will totally concede that point. But if you're the Orioles, you had no choice but to do this, to try an approach like this. And let's see what happens here. Like I said, pain now, pleasure later. Just keep saying that to yourself. If you are a suffering Orioles fan and you can't stand all the losing right now, just keep saying that to yourself. Pain now, pleasure later. Uh, Jorge Lopez was the Orioles pitcher on Wednesday afternoon. Actually pitched pretty well, but made one big mistake. By the way, if you're watching Orioles games, Jorge Lopez reminds me so much of Gio Gonzalez. Has like the same face and the same expressions, it seems to me, as Gio Gonzalez had. Anyway, Jorge Lopez ultimately allowed three runs in six innings. He tossed five scoreless innings, but then struggled the third time through the Twins lineup. Gave up a two-out three-run homer to Miguel Sano to dead center in the bottom of the sixth inning. Second consecutive, though, decent outing for Lopez. He and the Orioles 4-2 loss at the Nationals last Friday night. Actually had one of his better starts uh, so far this year. Two runs in five innings, eight strikeouts, though he did give up seven hits, did issue three walks, although one of them was intentional. But actually, Jorge Lopez has been halfway decent here lately. Two other bright spots. See, it's not all gloom and doom. Anthony Santander and Trey Mancini. Santander is hitting out of his mind since he came off the 10-day injured list last Friday. He'd been on that since April 21st due to a sprained left ankle. Santander in the 3-2 loss at the Twins on Wednesday afternoon. Two-out double in the top of the first to conclude an 11-pitch plate appearance in which he was down in the count at one point. 1-2. He ended up fouling off six pitches 
in that plate appearance. And this is something that Santander can do. He actually did this against the Nationals last weekend. And the Orioles 12-9 loss at the Nats last Saturday. Santander drew an 11-pitch walk in the Orioles' five-run first, despite having been down in the count at one point, one-two. So second time in less than a week that Santander turns a plate appearance in which he's down one-two into an 11-pitch plate appearance. That works out well. The walk against the Nationals, the two-out double in the loss at the Twins on Wednesday afternoon. But Santander, uh, over the course of the three games at the Twins, he goes as the starting right fielder in games one and two, starting DH in game three, number four batter for the O's in all three games, four for 12 with three doubles and a single. Santander last weekend in that three-game sweep at the Nationals, six for 13 with a homer, two doubles, three singles, and a spectacular walk that I just outlined for you. Also, Trey Mancini continues to do well. Uh, he, on Wednesday afternoon, Orioles starting first baseman, number three batter, two out solo homer on a bomb to left field on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the first, leadoff double on a 1-2 pitch in the Orioles, one run, ninth inning. Trey Mancini, as we speak on this Thursday, batting average of 278 on base percentage of 349, slugging percentage of 524. So you see, there are some things you can latch on to right now if you're an O's fan, but don't lose sight of the bigger picture. The way things were was not the way that things could continue to be. There was a painful rebuild that needed to be undertaken, and we are in the midst of the painful rebuild right now. And all you can hope for is that this thing pays off the way that this kind of rebuild paid off for the Chicago Cubs, the way that this kind of rebuild paid off for the Houston Astros. O's begin a four-game series at the Chicago White Sox Thursday night at 8-10. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Friday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast, we take you into Memorial Day weekend in fine fashion. Much more on the Washington football team. Got lots planned for you. Who knows? Maybe Jay-Z has bought the team by the time we speak on Friday's installment of the podcast. We'll have more on the Wizards, who are now down 2-0 to the Philadelphia 76ers in the first round of the NBA playoffs. More on Popcorn Gate. We'll see where that takes us. We expect to have two games for the Nationals to get into as they're set to conclude their series with the Cincinnati Reds at Nationals Park on Thursday. And we'll see if the Orioles' losing streak reaches 10 games with the start on Thursday night of a four-game series at the Chicago White Sox. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. You know, Samsonov has some stuff we're working on with him. 